So we have been through the three older guys, each of whom has accused Job twice of being essentially unrighteous and having some kind of secret sin that has found him out, which is the reason for the difficulties he's in. Job has not flinched. He has given them as good as he got and has stood fast that there's nothing going on that even remotely would have caused the problems that he's having. So at this point, they quit. So the next one we're going to get is Elihu, a younger man, and he will say that I have sat back in deference to my elders, but now I can't stand it anymore, and he then takes off. Now, by way of perspective, for those of you who have read ahead, you know that God will rebuke Job's three friends. God does not rebuke Elihu. However, Elihu doesn't say anything that is substantially different than what the three older guys have said. And the only thing I can think of is that Elihu is a young man and doesn't rise to the level of gravity that the older guys do, and so he isn't taken as seriously. Let me get into his speech, and then we're going to go over to Proverbs and some other places. So I'm now in Job 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes, not righteous in their eyes, but righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job, because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So this is clearly a zealous young man. So verse 6, And Elihu the son of Barakal the Bozite answered and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. In other words, let the gray-haired ones speak. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me, let me also declare my opinion. So what he's saying is that wisdom ultimately comes from God. You guys haven't demonstrated any. So I'm going to step up and I'm going to speak. And even though I'm young, I am getting my wisdom from God. And from his words, he's kind of a hothead. Verse 11. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold... There was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. So I was expecting you guys to step up with your gray hair and say something really wise, and you didn't do it. 13. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. That one takes a little bit of unpacking. So beware, lest you say, you in this case is the three older men. So beware, lest you say, 
we have found wisdom. In other words, we figured it out. God may vanquish him, not a man, which is to say, we have fired our best stuff at him. Wisdom here is let God answer him because we can't. And so what Elihu here is saying is you should not say that wisdom is let God sort him out. You should be sorting him out, is the gist of the argument. 14. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. So Job hasn't spoken to me, Elihu, therefore I will not use your speeches against Job. 15. They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? I also will answer with my share, and I will and I also will declare my opinion. What he's saying is, Job has parried all of your arguments, you got nothing left, and I'm going to step in. And I'm not going to wait anymore. Verse 18. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, and like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak, that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man, nor use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. As I say, he's kind of a hothead, and he's kind of full of himself, quite frankly. Which is why I'm sort of surprised that he doesn't get any mention at the end of the book from God. But he doesn't. You go to Proverbs, Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So the idea that this kid is bursting like a wineskin with new wine in it that's fermenting and just can't contain himself anymore in Proverbs is regarded as, eh, that's not maybe so good. Similarly, Proverbs 17.27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So what he's doing in his zeal here, he's sort of stepping outside the bounds of traditional Eastern wisdom, which is A, younger men keep silent in the presence of older men, but B, measure your words and don't be hasty to speak. And what he is specifically saying is, I got so much inside me, I feel like a fermented wineskin and I'm about to burst. And if I don't say something, I'm going to pop. And I'm suggesting to you that that's maybe not wise. And then James 3.2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So the idea there is, if you can control your lips, you can control everything else. So I have no idea why God's rebuke doesn't extend to him, other than perhaps he is a rash young man who doesn't necessarily know any better. And you've all met 18, 19, 20-year-old young guys that are just full of fire and the Holy Spirit, or at least they think it's the Holy Spirit, and boy, they just got to they got stuff they got to say. And I'm suggesting that perhaps Elihu is such a person. So first thing he's done now in verse 32, 
He's laid into his elders for being unable to bring Job to heal. Job's friends, even though they are no comfort, intend well. Because what they think is nobody can be righteous. And if Job is claiming to be righteous, that right there is the sin of pride. And that plus a bunch of secret stuff must be going on in his life. Otherwise, this stuff wouldn't be happening to him. So what you need to do, Job, is you need to lose your pride. You need to confess your sins. You need to get on your face and suck carpet. And perhaps then God will hear and forgive you. This is all intended to be by way of getting him straightened back out so that he can return to God's blessing. Now, we're privy, of course, to chapter 1. They are not privy to chapter 1. Job is not privy to chapter 1. And so nobody here knows that Job, in God's eyes, is actually righteous. And God will rebuke him later, but much more gently than he rebukes his friends. So now down to chapter 33. So this is Elihu still. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know they speak sincerely. You can read this two ways. One way you could read it is, I am righteous. I don't believe that's what's meant. What I think it means is, I am sincere. I am coming to you in the uprightness of my heart. I have no ulterior motives here. That, I think, is the way to read it. Verse 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Sort of two things again going on here. One is that Job would like to present his case before God, but realizes that in the presence of God, he would lose his knees and his voice. That's sort of thing one. And then thing two is... I'm a man just like you are, and furthermore, I am not one of the gray-haired ones like your friends. So tell me, speak to me, you need not be intimidated by anything that I say, because I am not greater than you are. Verse 8, surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Obviously repeating what Job has said, which is to say, I am without transgression, and he, God, finds occasion against me, and so forth, and counts me as his enemy. Twelve, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. I'm not sure what you do with that. So first off, behold, you're not right, but that's pretty clear. I will answer you, that's clear, for God is greater than man. I'm not sure where that one goes. 13. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? Now, Job has said that, remember? Job has said, I wish I could take God into court and have an impartial judge judge between us, but that is not possible, because there is no one qualified or powerful enough to drag God into court. 
There is no one qualified to be an arbiter with God on one side because God is the ultimate arbiter. So 13 again, why do you contend against him, him being God, saying he will answer none of man's words? In other words, you have a complaint against God that God is not answering your charges. Who are you to make such a complaint? 14, for God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, while they slumber in their beds, when he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So what Elihu is saying, Job is saying, is I have a complaint against God. I am being unjustly dealt with. Yet, God will not answer my defenses. So I'm trying to make a defense in the courts of heaven. God is not paying any attention to me. What Elihu is saying is God does speak. He speaks in dreams. He speaks in visions. He terrifies you to turn you away from a perilous path. In other words, there's all sorts of ways that God communicates with us, and the fact that he will not have discourse with you in a logical way that you demand does not mean that God isn't speaking to you. And in fact, what he's going to say is God is in fact speaking to you. This stuff that's happened to you is, in fact, communication from God. You're saying God won't talk to me, and what I'm saying is God is talking to you. You're just not listening. Back to verse 14 in this paragraph that we just read. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. This is, again, a Hebrewism. Six things, God hates, yea, I'll give you seven. So God speaks in one way, yea, I'll give you two, kind of a thing. And so God speaks all the time, even though you don't perceive it. Verse 19 now. Man is also rebuked with pain in his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite to choicest food. God speaks through things like illness and having an upset stomach at night, that kind of thing. 21. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. In other words, you become so sick that you don't eat, and you waste away and your bones are throwing through, through your skin. Verse 22. His soul draws near the pit, and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right to him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with you. Let him return to the days of his full vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and restores to man his righteousness. So you have this guy who is wasting away, sick, and this is all by way of God trying to get his attention. God's communicating with you, even though you don't recognize the communication. And if then in the heavenly court, an angelic mediator takes up your case, then God will hear and restore you to health. That's what all that says. And then once you are restored to health, then you will rejoice. Verse 27. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what is right, and it was not repaid to me. 
He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. He sings. He is the guy that has just been delivered from this illness. So he sings before men and says, I sinned. I was wrong. I perverted what was right. And it was not repaid to me. In other words, this is an expression of grace. What I deserved was to go down to the pit. It didn't happen. And because it didn't happen, and because my health has been restored to me, I will sing of God's mercy. 29. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. This is obviously a fiery young kid who is full of his understanding and trying to pass on his own wisdom. Verse 32 again now. If you have words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. Remember we talked about this angel, one of a thousand in the previous paragraph, who would go before the heavenly court and advocate for this guy that was wasting away. And what Elihu was saying is, I desire to be such an advocate for you. And if you've got anything to say that I can use, by all means, say it. Otherwise, sit there quietly, and I will teach you some wisdom. 34. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right. And God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. What he's saying here is, Job has insisted upon his own righteousness, has insisted that he is without transgression. That makes Job someone who is scoffing at God. Said, it profits a man nothing that he should take the light in God. And again, that's true. Job said that early. I have taken the light in God and look at what has happened to me. I have not received recompense for my righteousness. So Elihu is in fact quoting Job accurately. Verse 10. Therefore, Hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. The idea that Job is saying that somehow what God is doing is unjust imputes evil motives to God, which is not possible. Popping up a layer, what God has done is set Job up to do him tremendous honor. It's not something Job volunteered for. It goes back to the passage in Paul where he says some vessels are made for honor and some are made for dishonor and you know it's, it's up to the potter what he does with the clay kind of thing. So the idea here is that God is able to put Job in that situation because God is a potter and Job is the clay. However, God also is just. And so even though he has in the 
sense of a potter and clay, used Job for a purpose that Job did not volunteer for, he is, in the end, going to show Job great honor. And in God's understanding, in God's economy, what Job comes out with at the end is worth everything that he goes through. Nobody knows that in the story. So they're all fumbling around, trying to figure this out. Job knows he's not done anything wrong. His friends know God is not unjust, so they can't reconcile. Let's pick it up at 10, and I'll read the paragraph. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. In truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice, who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world. If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. First off, back to 11 now. According to the work of a man, he will repay him. Well, that's in fact what's going to happen. The work that Job is doing is standing up and holding on to his righteousness, his understanding of God, and he is not buckling. That's the work he's doing. And when that work is finished, God, in fact, will repay him. So this is absolutely true. They just obviously don't see the whole process. And then down here, if God decided at some point to stop sustaining the world, the world will cease to exist. Verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to the princes, or regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? Shall one who hates justice govern? So will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king? So the one who is righteous and mighty is God. And God says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, at midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. So what he's saying is, will you, Job, condemn God, in whose hands are the lives of kings, and who shows no partiality between the king and the pauper? The idea with Job is, who are you to judge God? 21. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, his being God. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. God is continually aware of everything that is going on, so if you were to go before God in judgment, there would be no additional information that you could provide him. Anybody that goes into court who thinks he's innocent knows that if the judge knew everything he knew, then obviously I'd be acquitted. So your job here of the lawyer or the defendant is to explain to the judge something the judge doesn't know so that the judge will render a favorable judgment. What Elihu is saying is, uh, not with God. Because God watches your every step. 
There is no new information that you could bring into court that is going to change his judgment. So 23 again. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. There's nothing you're going to bring before God in judgment that's going to be anything he doesn't know. There's no need for him to consider anything further. He already knows it all. 24. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. The idea is God is going throughout the world silently, unobserved, and watching what everybody does. And when God finally decides that it's time to render judgment on a man or a nation, he simply does it. He doesn't invite the man or the nation to come into his court and to have a trial or a debate. He already knows everything. So when he decides to act, he simply does it without further consultation. And oh, by the way, Job, that's what's happened to you. And oh, by the way, not only is he not going to give you an audience in his court, you don't deserve one. Because there's nothing you're going to be able to say that he doesn't already know. Job is a giant of the faith. He whines and all that kind of stuff, but he is truly a giant. Because in the face of all of this that is happening to him, he does not lose his integrity and he does not curse God. He simply says, this isn't right and I don't understand it. And of course, the difference is time horizon because Job is looking at it from a time horizon of a very short time. God is looking at it on a longer time horizon. From God's perspective, Job's righteous, and this little kerfluffle that he's going through right now, when that's all done, I'm going to reward him, I'm going to write a book about him in the Bible, it's going to be all cool. So in my time horizon, this is a good deal. In Job's time horizon, oh man, this is terrible. 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment. I will not offend any more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. If you go back to Leviticus, Leviticus 26, this is what's known as the uh, a rebuke. There's two rebukes in the Torah. There's one here in Leviticus, and then there's one at the end of Deuteronomy. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your road shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. It is punishment for sin, but that's not the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise is Israel has gone astray, 
and what they're doing is being smacked around for their sin with the idea that they'll straighten up and say, whoa, we have sinned and we'll turn and go back to where they're supposed to be. So it isn't vindictive punishment that is in view here. What it is is correction. So I will punish you, yes, and I will do that because you've sinned, yes, and you deserve it, yes, but the idea is I really want you to take notice when this happens and turn around and get back to where you're supposed to be. That's what Elihu is talking about. So now come back to Job 34:31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. So the idea there is, Job, you're being chastened by God. God is communicating with you, Job. What you need to do is you need to quit walking contrary to God and get rid of your sin and get back into good relationship with him. In other words, all of this that has happened to you, Job, is by way of getting you back on track, not because God takes some perverse delight in punishing you. The difference here is time horizon. From the, the horizon of these two men, Job has either sinned or not, and his punishment is either just or not, but his only remedy in, in Elihu's perspective is to turn. From Job's perspective, there is no remedy because I can't turn. In other words, I've been walking righteously, so I can't turn, so I can't respond to this correction. And Elihu is saying is, you need to respond to this correction and turn around and get back to where you're supposed to be so the correction will stop. 33. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose, and not I. Therefore declare what you know. So what he's saying is, God will not make repayment to suit you. God does not dance to your tune. And you, Job, must make the choice. I can't make a choice for you. Therefore, declare what you know, which is to say, confess your sin. 34. Men of understanding will say to me, the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. All of which is to say, Job... It is very obvious to all four of us that you have got to be a sinner because the only reason that this would be happening to you is in recompense to sin because God is just. And here you are not only insisting on your righteousness, but you're adding rebellion to your sin. Instead of confessing your sin, turning and trying to get back to God, what you're doing is you're shaking your fist in God's face and you're saying, I'm righteous. And that is rebellion, which is on top of the sin that you are in. As I said, I don't see why Elihu is not included in the rebuke that God does at the end. I am going to stop there. We've got a couple more chapters of Elihu there. I don't want to start on another chapter. I don't think I have time to finish it. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.